Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's show. I hope you are all doing well. Uh, We are continuing our look at the developments and evolutions that are happening in the field of family wealth and uh, I'm joined by three fantastic guests this week who are Dennis Jaffe, Jim Grubman and Kristen Keffler and they have been doing a lot of work on a topic that they refer to or we refer to in the show called Wealth 3.0. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, don't worry, because Jim does a great job in explaining where the term comes from and what we're discussing in terms of the context of the evolution from Wealth 1.0 to Wealth 2.0 to what we're now seeing with Wealth 3.0. So you will hear all about that in the episode itself. Before we get into the uh, nitty gritty of it, though, please do sign up to the newsletter. You can do that via the podcast website Um, and as I mentioned in the trailer for this series um, please do get in touch I've got um, another series after this planned for uh, looking at governance stories and and stories from family businesses who have implemented uh, their own governance structures and the sort of benefits and pitfalls that they would have experienced through doing that Beyond that, I'm then telling you about a very exciting project that I've been working on with um, a colleague in the States. And then after that, I want to create something that has been generated by you, the listener. So if you want to get in touch and share with me the topics that are close to your heart, that are impacting you as a family business at the moment, I will endeavor to get the right guest on uh, or talk about the right topic Um, for that so uh, the best way to do that is via email which is russ at familybusinesspartnership.com i look forward to hearing from you all regarding uh, those topics right so let's move into the discussion with jim dennis and Kristen. Uh, as i say we're discussing wealth 3.0 and don't worry we do explain what that is and i'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation and uh, let's get on with that now well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's show. Today, I am joined by not one, not two, but three esteemed guests on the show. We have Dennis Jaffe, we have Jim Grubman, and Kristen Keffler. 
those who are regular listeners to the show will know Dennis and Jim from previous shows, and we're delighted to welcome Kristin for um, her first, uh, I'm sure not last, uh, appearance on the show. Um, so firstly, welcome. And Kristin, do you want to give the audience um, a little bit of background information as to who you are, what you do, and then we can go to Jim and Dennis to introduce themselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Russ. So I am a family business and a family enterprise consultant, and I've been working in the space for about 16 years. When I first started, I was 29 years old, which was too young to be taken seriously as a consultant. But where, where I started was the, the place that's core to my heart, which is next generation coaching. And that is still something that I consider to be a core part of how I work with families. So I, I think that this, the Wealth 3.0 work is something that is near and dear to, to my heart and to my approach as someone that, that comes through the space of positive psychology. Fantastic. And Jim, do you want to reintroduce yourself to um, those that have heard you uh, on the show before or introduce yourself to those that haven't? Sure, Russ. Thank you. I am a family wealth consultant and family enterprise consultant based in the Boston, Massachusetts area. I've been doing this for not quite as long as Dennis has, but back into the dot-com era that some of us will remember more than 20, 25 years or so. And I worked directly with multi-generational families of wealth, do speaking, writing, presenting in the industry, training, and I've worked for about 20 years with my wonderful collaborator, Dennis, here and now, including Kristen. Fantastic. And Dennis, over to you. Well, I've been in the field a long time. I am a researcher, an educator, and I work with, with families. And that's I do all those things as a way of uh, learning as well as doing service. And uh, I'm recently off for two research studies. One was a global study where I interviewed and, and visited 100, 100 year families and interviewed members of two generations and asked them um, what they had done and um, how they accounted for their long term success. And that put together in my book, Borrowed from Your Grandchildren. And then more recently, I just I came out with a book with my colleague, Amy Hart Klein at Pitcairn where we interviewed 40 women who are new matriarch from first to second generation about how they became family leaders. So I draw on a lot of experience and, and I, I'm starting to work again and travel with, with families, but this is, you know, wonderful, you know, kind of area of practice and it's always new and we're always finding ideas to challenge. Absolutely. And that brings us uh, very nicely on to the topic of today's conversation, which we've titled as Wealth 3.0. And before we get into perhaps the detail of Wealth 3.0, it would be useful to place that into a context. So Jim, I don't know whether you can kind of run us through what Wealth 1.0 was and what Wealth 2.0 was, because again, for those that perhaps are outside of, of the field might not uh, be aware of what those terms are and what they mean. Sure. This was something I coined. The origin of all this goes back to a lunch conversation I actually had with a wonderful guy that we all know, John A. Warnick, who has run the Purposeful Planning Institute for well over a decade. And he and I were talking in January of 2019 about the fact that uh, PPI was coming up on a decade of its work and what was looking ahead. 
and he asked me to think about that and maybe do a keynote. And so I started thinking back on the history of the field. And I think, Russ, that's sort of your, your reference that not everybody really knows some of the history of the family advising field regarding wealth and families. So I did a little bit of a retrospective. And where we started was that before about 1980, plus or minus, it's important to realize there was really very little that was written in any depth or detail, particularly about what we might call everyday wealth. Most of the writings were about dynastic wealth, the Mellons, the Carnegies, the Rockefellers, and what general society knew of wealthy people was mostly a long-standing, old money kind of wealth. And there were books written about it. There were some relatively obscure psychological, psychiatric articles, usually in a fairly negative way. But there really wasn't much. And the whole industry of wealth management really, in, in the modern times, had not been born yet. And then starting in the late 70s and moving through the 80s, the field of family business advising started to be born. There started to be the voices of inheritors coming out. Some of these were the children of the 60s who were maturing and wanted to make their voices known. One of the first well-known uh, writings was uh, the dissertation by Joni Bronfman, who comes from the Seagram's Bronfman family. And she wrote The Experience of Inherited Wealth and talked about some of the challenges of wealth. And through the 80s and up through actually now, then became what I call Wealth 2.0, which is really much of what people know that's been going on for the last 30, 40 years, that on one hand did a great job of bringing out the voices of inheritors, the voices of the wealthy, new wealth, as well as old wealth, old money. We had the dot-com era, sudden wealth syndrome. We had the tremendous rise in books and articles, especially through the 90s and the 2000s. Many people know, like Jay Hughes' Family Wealth, Keeping in the Family, Navigating the Dark Side of Wealth, Silver Spoon Kids. Charlie Collier's Wealth and Families, which has gone through multiple editions. And so Wealth 2.0 was really what we are still riding through. And it was a tremendous advance from what was before. However, what my point in the first keynote and what Dennis and Kristen and I have started writing about is realizing that Wealth 2.0 has been infused with some maybe what we'll call unconscious bias or perhaps conscious bias that has been unfortunately uh, negative and pessimistic and has really played up the fears and the concerns and the worries, again, particularly of first-generation wealth creators, exemplified by three main so-called proofs uh, that wealth does not survive very long. One is the shirt sleeve to shirt sleeves in three generations, cited as being ubiquitous, and therefore it must be true. The second being the study by John Ward and associates in the 1980s, saying that um, only 30% of family businesses survived through the second generation, 13% in the third, 3% in the fourth. Therefore, family businesses are going to go down. And the Williams and Presser citation 
that 70% of wealth transitions fail. And therefore, you know, we have to look at the causes and the difficulties in families. And so these three proofs of Wealth 2.0 remain very much alive. But as Dennis and Kristen can chime in here, perhaps, we're really beginning to question the validity of all of those. And in fact, the pessimism bias that has been built into Wealth 2.0. So let me stop there and get comments uh, from my colleagues. Well, I, I'd say that, that, you know, that there are a, a number of things. One is that, that Wealth 3.0 doesn't negate Wealth 2.0, but it, it kind of enables us to get, get beyond some of the kind of deficiencies and, and unintended consequences of Wealth 2.0. So I think that stuff, you know, one of the things that is needed to be repaired in Wealth 2.0 is um, a tendency for uh, financial services firms and advisors to kind of sell small projects and to do that by doing everything they could to, you know, get the family committed. But I think they, by getting the family committed, using scare tactics and things like that, what they had as an unintended consequence is that the family members felt more independent. They felt, wow, we can't survive without this lifeline that our financial services People. So in order to get the contract and, and get the work, which is, you know, which is what they have to do, they were, you know, kind of creating dependency in, in families rather than helping families to see you can do it. You can really begin to govern yourselves. You can begin to grow and develop and you don't have to be done in by uh, your limitations. And, and, and so I think that, you know, we're trying to make a, a course correction in 2.0. We're not trying to, we're not we certainly don't want to obliterate it. Yeah, I would I would underscore what Dennis said about this really being an evolution, not an insurrection of, of into the next stage, that this is really about what comes next and how do we take what is positive and has really supported the field through the, the last many decades and continue to evolve as a field into what is likely, hopefully going to be a more professionalized field with some standard practices and the the in that the research that we use and that we that we demand as as consumers of research will be up leveled and and feeding us new information that can help families understand new pathways forward, not just be looking at what they're running from that would be bad outcomes, but what they can move towards that would be really positive outcomes. Yeah, I think that's a, a really um, valid point there. And, and Dennis, a question uh, to, to you in terms of the what you see in the, the research that you did on a, on a hundred year family businesses is obviously they are those that are successful as family enterprises over that time period. But did you see in your research, and, and I'm I kind of I've read the book, so I, I kind of know the answer to this. What we're not saying is that the Wealth 3.0 is a, a move away from having to work harder in order to um, sustain family enterprise or sustain family wealth, but it's much more about the focus that we put on it being a positive one rather than the pessimistic one. Is that a, a fair um, summary? And it's it's more than, <clears throat> it starts with a positive attitude, but uh, there was a couple of, the number of things I see, and remember these are you know, in the mythology, these are the families that would be in the four or three percent. So these are not usual families, but they had they 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 didn't have a negative attitude. They weren't based on fear. They were 
they really had a great sense of confidence. And somehow the second and third generation were not running on, oh God, um, how am I going to do this? It's so overwhelming. They were confident and, and they, they built their own, used their own vision to develop the family. But the, and I think the, the key things that I saw were these were families. And so they, they were, it wasn't a single business. So for the family, it's like selling the business. That, that's a big thing, but it's not the end of the family. So um, in the studies of, you know, kind of church leave to church leave, they say, well, we sold the business, therefore we must be poor. No, you sell the business for a billion dollars, you're liquid. And, and then, the, but you have big challenges. What do we want to do? What are we competent in? What are we, um, what are we going to, what, what is our wealth for? And so these families found and made a shift from being families with a, a legacy business to being families that were building a great family. And the way they built a great family is to do emphasize values, look at their purpose, develop people to do, do things that they were passionate about, to see the family as professional. You see, the family said, we are, we are minding money that, that most people can't even imagine. We have to do it responsibly. Therefore, everybody in the family, we're not going to just name one person and say, you're it, you're the money manager, and we're all going to coast on this. No, everybody has to step up. Everybody has to be informed. And we have to spend a lot of time together, a positive thing. So, so there was a real, you know, kind of all the hundred families really were inspiring. They were positive. They were building families and they were very, very highly engaged in doing these things. It was not a, you know, kind of, you know, an easy or, or quick thing that they can do. There was no quick fix. If I can add to that, I think one of our concerns about Wealth 2.0 is in some ways sort of calling the industry on the fact that there's been a fair amount of fuzzy thinking and, and you know estimation of what is and calling them as truths without really having a lot of basis for doing so. That you know the early research, for, for example, the Ward 1987 study about family businesses was later reevaluated and, and done in a much better way and found that the results were actually opposite. Family businesses, in fact, did quite well. And if you follow, as Dennis says, the family and not the money, business families go through multiple iterations, are in multiple industries. One business may rise and fall, but if you follow the family, success often continues. I recently have completed a new article that's going to be coming out in Barbara Hauser's uh, International Family Offices Journal, talk, looking at the Williams and Presser allegations that 70% of wealth transitions fail. And having followed their evidence for that, have found it wanting, shall we say, that there really is very little basis for it. In fact, all it is is the reversal. Instead of saying 30% of uh, uh, family businesses survive in the second generation, Williams and Presser just said 70% of businesses fail. And there's really very little else beyond that. But in general, uh, part of what we're saying is when advisors, including consultants, say, well, I see this all the time. There's, there's lots of challenges of wealth. People really struggle. I see kids who are entitled. I see this all the time. It's very prevalent. And the implication is, and it's the norm we're sort of objecting a bit and saying, wait a minute, this is not unlike um, 
you know, if you talk to a psychologist and you say, how many people uh, in the world have anxiety or depression based upon the number of people that they see in their practice, they would say, oh, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, studies of actual prevalence in the community indicate that anxiety might be present, you know, in 17% of the population. You cannot extrapolate from the, the what you see. And we're sort of saying there's a lot of cognitive biases, things that you see in behavioral finance, hindsight bias, confirmation bias that have plagued Wealth 2.0. And we're saying, actually, we really don't know what the prevalence is, for example, of families who do well or don't. And we need to say, we don't know, rather than fill it with statistics that in fact may be false. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's a bias from an advisor's perspective on the outcome that they perceive as a successful outcome might be completely different to the outcome that the families perceive as a successful outcome. If we use, you know, the passing of the business down multiple generations as one definition of success, that might be burdening the next generation in a business that they're not necessarily you know, that enamored with that they want to do and actually selling it and allowing them to follow their own dreams and passions might be the best outcome for everybody. But if the bias within the advisory community is we need to keep this single human construct legal entity going as a measure of success, it's, it's not allowing the freedom to explore what options are available and what, you know, exploring individual purpose and family purpose and, you know, the collective goal that the family might have. It, again, is that a fair... Um, criticism of, of where advisory sit? I think one challenge is, is that the, after the uh, beginning of the field, the research focus passed to the business school. And if you're a business school, you study a business. So you, you whereas the, the, in Wealth 3.0, I think we're studying families. And a family has a business, but that isn't who they are. And that isn't their destiny. So just shifting from the business first to focus on the family creates a different research perspective. The other you know, thing about the negative bias is there's a little bit of uh, a wish fulfillment. We, all the media is about, you know, kind of dysfunctional families. We love to see, you know, that it's like they get their just desserts. And uh, there's a little bit of that in saying, <clears throat> you know, you, you families will be entitled and, and decay over generations. When you know it's it's just a a wish or a or a challenge rather than a, a a sentence. And and I think for Kristen and Dennis and I and actually Russ, you work in the field as well. You know, this is the thing which is we see a lot of families who are doing okay. In fact, doing quite well. They get no attention. And in fact, if and again, this is a cognitive bias regarding stereotypes which is if you point out a family is doing well, they say, well, yes, that's true, but you know, they're the exception. So they avoided the curse of shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve. It's always framed as the norm is decline and pessimism. And the exception is when somebody does well. Uh And, you know, our message is, wait a minute, we actually really don't know that we have no good evidence. And in fact, it may be in a lot of the studies, you know, that we've looked at over 20 years and more, very often the results show that there's a good solid 30 to 40% of the respondents in the study who are doing perfectly fine. But the headline says 
you know, 53% of parents were worried that their kids might be entitled. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess part of that leads me on, on to the, the next question, which, um, Chris, it might, might be a good one for, for you to bring your sort of expertise in on in, in terms of the consequences of perpetuating this fear, particularly across generations. You mentioned in your intro that you worked with next generation, rising generation in, in their work. And I imagine that there are examples where they're coming with this kind of predisposed assumption that we're going to be the ones that are going to mess this up because of this three generation rule or the 70% rule or whichever one is being used. Is that something that you, you see in, in the work you're doing with next gen? With such prevalence that, that it's, I could say it's almost ubiquitous that it is like, and, and the pressure, I think you named something Russ, that is an element of like your question was like, what is, what is detrimental about this fear-based approach? And one of the, the detriments is that for, for many rising gen, one of their greatest fears is they're going to be the ones to screw it up. And so when they, when they're coming from that place, they're not, they're not learning how to tolerate discomfort. They're not learning how to be appropriate risk takers. They're not learning how to think for themselves because the thing that they, they, they want to make sure that they're just coloring within the lines to not be the one who accidentally you know, made a bad choice and, and did something wrong. So, you know, wrong and, and lost the family fortune or, or something like that. And so I think that at its most fundamental level, the, one of the reasons that using fear as a tool doesn't work is because biologically, when we are coming from a place of fear and, and scarcity, we shut down our possibility thinking, right? Our, our focus narrows, we become very tribal. Like we are just wired to sort of batten down the hatches and close in when we are frightened. And so when families are, are, have advisors using fear as a tool and they internalize that fear, that's when they, they become less transparent with their, with their kids. And, and they just want to make sure that those resources are protected. They become less community focused. They, they really do become much more tribal and inward focused to try to protect. And, and from that place, there's not a road, an easy road forward to possibility to those resources being really being integrated into the lives of family members as a tool, um, as a tool to really support their thriving and their ability to think about impact in the world. So I think that, you know, it, it's a, it's a Jim Grubman line. And I think it's a powerful one that, that fear is natural, but fear is not an outcome. And the more that, you know, as we've been having these conversations with advisors and, and the advisors we're talking to are saying like, yeah, but fear works. And, and I would say there's a distinction that's important, which is like fear is present, but then, and it's our job to, to help direct that to the, and, and what, and what are you going to do about that? Yes. You can acknowledge that you're scared that, that your kids aren't going to do well with the resources that you have created. So what, what, what's already working? What are the things, what's the scaffolding we can put in place to help you feel like you and they feel like they have a pathway forward that's empowering and exciting and something that leads them to possibility. And that's, that is different than recognizing that fear can be present 
it is different than using fear as a tool. And, and I think that that's one of the places where it's an important recognition for our field to move past. It, it's time to let what fear is a tool sort of go into the past as we think about really building out our toolkits in a much more robust and engaging way for families. That brings me to a question, and, and I'm really interested by the, the comment that the, the fear works because as a kind of sales technique, I guess you could boil it down to, it probably does work. My question would be, who does it work for? It works for the institutions that are then trying to sell the solutions to that fear. It doesn't necessarily work entirely for the family who, as we spoke about earlier, are able to explore the possibilities more if they embrace it through a, a more positive mindset. So, so the question I have, and, and throwing this open to, to anyone who wants to, to grab hold of it, is who's responsible for driving the change or the evolution to World 3.0? Because if I'm in an environment where my fear, fear tactics are working, it's generating revenue, it's creating solutions, that the incentive to try and drive that change is difficult. If I'm a family listening to this going, absolutely, I want to embrace the possibilities and, and the positive elements of, of Wealth 3.0, and there's nobody out there actually embracing it from an advisory position. We're left in a position where it's very difficult to, to match a positive Wealth 3.0 firm with a Wealth 3.0 family. Uh, have you got any thoughts on who needs to take the lead on this? Well, I, I would start by saying that's actually where Kristen and Dennis and I are at now, which is doing more writing about the techniques the uh, practical applications and the how-to of Wealth 3.0 for advisors in particular. In the article that uh, just got published in Trust and Estates, that was our first rollout article, I tell an anecdote where I'm talking with an advisor who, and we're talking about families that he works with, a financial advisor, and then he makes a comment, which is, and you know, we've done well, I've done really well, way beyond my dreams and stuff. And my wife and I, we really worry about our kids too. They have a much uh, softer, better life than ever I had growing up. And, you know, and, and then he says something like, and, you know, church sleep to church slaves. I just worry, you know, what's going to happen with them. And I had a choice of what to say at that moment. I could have said in a fear-based way, yeah, you know, it's really tough and a lot of families don't survive and you really got to watch your kids. But instead, I asked him a positive question. I said, well, you know, tell me a little bit about your kids and tell me what you and your wife have already done. His kids were, I forget, like 12 and 14. Tell me what you've already done to try and help your kids grow up responsibly and do well. And he starts ticking off all these things that they have done with money skills, and charitable giving and telling stories and involving his kids. And all it took was my asking a, a positive question versus confirming the negative. And after he goes through this, I said, like, well, actually, you know, it sounds like your kids are doing pretty well. And there was a pause. And he said, you know, you're right. I guess they really are. I hadn't thought about it. And then we talked about what he could do to continue and expand. So in many ways, what we are talking about is a shift in training and technique where advisors actually may need to know 
how to ask those questions and not feed the fear, but to feed the possibility and to get clients thinking of what they can do, what they already have done, and what maybe they thought of doing but hesitated and moving forward. And, and you know, Kristen and Dennis may have further examples of that. I've got another interesting example of, of how we need to educate family offices in terms of how they do it. So here's a family office, which is 10 people that are there to manage the wealth of the family. The next generation is growing up. They have, you know, four kids and they fear, you know, not being worthy. And, and the, the father was a great entrepreneur. How could I measure up? And these are the feelings they have. So what's happened is the family office in its good intentions has taken over doing a lot of things for them and they're not consulted. And the kids say, oh, I, I, I feel, you know, kind of shame and guilt and I'm not, not enough. And so they don't take action. And the question is, you know, so they're waiting for the feelings to go away. And I, I, I was talking to them. I said, you know, the feelings are behind the action. And if you start to act and make decisions and define what you want and get involved, behind that will be the feelings will change. But if you wait for the feelings to change, nothing will ever happen. And the, the, the family office and their good intentions do a lot of things for them. And uh, the, there is a lot of options for the, for the next generation to take over. And then we got into the thing that, that the same thing that Jim, that the kids are already running the foundation for the family and they're doing a wonderful job. And we said, well, why maybe you could be creating a, an investment foundation and begin to learn about investments and, uh, and, and do things you could take over managing some of the wealth in a positive way. And so we talked about empowerment rather than waiting for the feelings to go away. I think that's such a, such a powerful um, story, Dennis, that, that that's, it's one of the things that I see time and time again is that there's, with all the best intent, the, the advisory system can create this infantilization of the, of the rising generation, right? right? They're, they're competent, capable people who are being paid good money to come in and make streamline the financial lives of families. And in doing so, they end up taking on important developmental tasks for, for these emerging adults to become adults. And part of that is like engaging with, with money on a day-to-day -day level in their lives, which I think is a pathway, engaging with money is a pathway to being able to effectively engage with wealth, which is really just an abstraction. Like the idea of wealth is very abstract. And, and so I think that, that your, your original question was whose job is it to, to lead this? Is it advisors or is it families? And I really think like, this is a dance and part of, part of what, like the field will change when enough advisors have a sense that there's another way to do this and that it's not terrifying and that they're still effective and have full practices when they use this other method of, of that is, has a more possibility frame on it. And when enough families understand that there's another way and that that the the failure rates and the the quote unquote data we've been feeding them for the past three decades is based on nothing. And and when the families say, like, well, wait a minute, then then what are our odds of being successful? That that's the time that we can say, well, what does success look like? And that might invite advisors to 
to engage in a different way. And so I really do think that it's going to be a dance between families and advisors. And our job right now is to just really get the message and the, and the science out there that illustrates that this can be a much more effective and sustainable path for families and advisors. And from my perspective, so much more enjoyable to work as an advisor in this kind of territory than to work as an advisor that started all my presentations with a pie chart and the and the 70 percent of the the families that were going to fail as my starting place yeah absolutely and i think as well it's important to highlight that all of us on this episode are involved one way or another with the ultra high net worth institute and that as yes. a resource for um families and advisors who are listening to this and thinking where do we start i guess we would signpost people towards the Institute. I mean, we're going to, I'll put a link in the show notes to right. the article so that people can read the article and also to the Institute because there's a fantastic amount of resource available um, through the Institute. Jim and I have recorded a, a show on the 10 domain of family wealth as a, as a model and, and more recently on, on integrated um, family wealth as well. So there, there is more and more resources being made available for for individuals and firms who want to take this forward. A comment on that, because actually what your question was, and, and I think what our responses have been, particularly in what Kristen just said, is during a paradigm shift, there's a real difficulty where for a while there's a vacuum. Wealth 2.0 told a really good story. It just so happens that the story was not true, <laughs> but it told a really good story and everybody well, really believed it because it was incomplete. It was incomplete. And that in some ways, if we move out a lot of the fear-based and the bad research and the beliefs about things, for a while, we actually going to have a vacuum. Of, well, we don't have good research on prevalence and, and the nature of things. We don't have, we haven't built the whole infrastructure of what you should say and what you do. And that's what we have to do now. And I think for the industry to, number one, be able to tolerate that and not have to have quick, easy answers to things which actually, you know, have their drawbacks. For a while, we are going to have to realize we're in between stories. And this then leads to the second piece, which is to create new stories also means creating new research and having new training and developing the field as a much stronger, more rigorous professional field that we really have to get our act together and we have to scale up good training programs, have a curriculum. Your comment about the 10 domains made me think of that, Russ, which is the idea that you know we need consultants and the field to have more rigor and understanding the knowledge base and the skill competencies that are needed. So you know, paradigm shifts are not easy. We went through this last time in the 1980s when we went from 1.0 to 2.0. And so we're entering a period where it is going to have to take some work. We are going to have to persevere and we have to keep talking with each other to build this. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot that we can, as well as learning around the um, 10 domains, as, as we've spoken about um, before, Jim, but there, there's learning that we can take from other fields. And Krista, I know you're very familiar with the, the field of positive psychology. And I just wonder if we can touch on the 
elements that we can learn in moving this forward that perhaps positive psychology has done in, in, in another field? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do have some specific things I want to name, but something Jim just said also par- that I think there's also some parallel information we can take from the field of positive psychology, which is um, when the, the, the field of positive psychology actually, well, sort of in its official naming and, and, and how we think of it today is about 25 years old and has deep, deep roots, you know, way back to ancient philosophy and, and really looking at, at whether it was Confucius or Lao Tzu or the Greek philosophers, like a lot of what positive psychology has as its underpinning today comes from, from long ago thinking and has had many iterations through the years, including humanistic psychology and right. There's a, so in, in that way, positive psychology has traversed different eras of its own. And, and the thing that was the, the sort of flashpoint that made positive psychology become a field of its, of its own was Marty Seligman saying to the field, you know, we, we under, we now understand human suffering as a result of all the research and grant dollars that, that got thrown at, at mental health after world war II, we have a much stronger understanding of human suffering, but we have lost our psychological roots in understanding human thriving. And when he brought that call to action to the field within about three to five years, if you look at a graph of the research that exploded after that call to action, it, it went from, you know, this sort of like trickling of research that would really be considered solid empirical research looking at human thriving to this hockey stick that, and that hockey stick is still alive today and growing as the field has expanded into looking at positive organizations and the use of appreciative inquiry and the, and looking at, at, at family systems as a subset of positive organizations. I think that there's, whether we're looking at the individual use of character strengths or the idea of looking at character traits such as grit and a growth mindset, there, there are so many places where there's, there's whole fields being like subset fields being studied in positive psychology that we can take from the research that's being done there and plug it into our work and until to support and until we are building our own research hockey stick. And my hope would be, so I, I think there's two, two things that, two important points I would want to make with that. One, I hope that this is our call to action. I hope that this moment in time is the time that we move from like a trickling of of good, well-designed empirical studies to a hockey stick that someday we'll look back and say like, wow, how did we even function before we had all this good data? And so I think we are, we, we can look to other fields that have gone through these kinds of evolutions and, and have faith in the vacuum, right? In this time in between. And two, I think that actually just turning our attention to other fields, and I'm, I'm most familiar with what is present in positive psychology, but I think that there's probably a lot of work that we could look at just even stealing from, um, borrowing from anthropology and sociology. And we could probably even look at some of the natural sciences and really think about like how systems evolve and what we understand about how biological systems evolve over time and think about how those concepts 
apply to family systems in an organic way. So I, I, I guess I feel like there's a lot of, there's just a lot of structure around us if we open our eyes and look for it. And I think the key there is that there are huge benefits a- across the board of, of taking that approach, right? It's not as if there's a big loser set that come out of that worse off it, it it's all ships rising in a in a, a rising tide as, as the saying goes i also think part of the importance of, in terms of embracing this paradigm shift as, as jim and you have mentioned about the vacuum is it, in my very limited understanding of the the positive psychology field is when it was first emerging there was a lot of criticism towards it as if it was happyology i think it was kind of being rephrased as and yet that hockey stick of research has proved that they were onto something and it's much more established and recognized it's not to say that that one is better than the other but embracing learning from from all of it is perhaps a way forward and i think if if we collectively i'm I'm referring to us as as the field can can help to to accelerate and to energize the work behind that then again everybody's um, all the better for it i'm very conscious of our time but I, w- I want to give us a, a little bit of opportunity for some concluding thoughts so i don't know whether dennis you want to to share your sort of concluding thoughts and, and your rally call to, to the to the field uh, off the back of what we've just been discussing well i think that the theme that we've been focused on for the last uh, couple of minutes is, is that, that this is an evolution it's not a cancellation and i think that we can learn from dichotomous thinking this is good this is bad Generally, that's not a good way to look at things, to look at things and say, hey, we tried something, it was successful up to a point, but it had some deficiency. Now we're going to learn from the deficiency and move on to the next thing. That's the attitude that we need to bring to this. We're not canceling 2.0, we're developing it. And all of the, the, the field is developing because the um, people's way of looking at wealth people's needs, the complexity of the world, everything is changing. So we have to be going with evolution. And I, I think the points that we're making are to kind of you know, look to what we can do, not um, what's wrong with it, and to eliminate either or thinking and, and kind of fatalistic thinking and thinking that you're, you're in a box and, and trapped and really help people see there's always opportunities and what our role is is to help people discover the opportunities and optimize. Absolutely. And Jim, anything you want to, to add to that? I just, I endorse what Dennis said very, very much that people often think of 3.0 as replacing 2.0. It's really more an evolution and a building on the good aspects. I mean, the, the last 30, 40 years have done tremendous things. Uh, when we look at, you know, when Jay Hughes first started talking about the capitals of the family, other than the financial capital. We still use that. It is still wonderful. The idea of preparation and financial education for the rising generation, the term rising generation itself as a more positive term. There's so many things that were wonderful during Wealth 2.0 that we want to keep and build on. We're just trying to extract the parts in some ways that are holding us back and holding families back. And so it is uh, an evolution and a moving forward to enhance the good parts of it so that in 3.0, we have the developments which were great progress built on and added with uh, better research, better training, better techniques, 
uh, better attitude, motivating by purpose and empowerment rather than only with fear. So it really is uh, an evolutionary process that we need to just continue to have a good dialogue about. Fantastic. And uh, uh, last but by no means least, Kristin, in, in terms of your uh, concluding thoughts on, on what we've been talking about today. Yeah, I think there is the, the one last thing I would add to what Dennis and Jim have said, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is that the, along with the the sort of theoretical and conceptual call to action, right? Like this idea that we're saying, this is another way. And, and we're, as Dennis said earlier, we are, we as a field and we as a, as a thinking partnership threesome here are also thinking about how do we make this practical and tangible for advisors. And, and, and we want to get, we want to get um, advisors with feeling like they can have their boots on the ground right away in, in using some of these ideas. And there's a, a, along with that, there's a bigger body of work for us as a field to do. And this is something that, that Jim has done a lot of thinking on. And I think collectively we've talked a lot about, which is the professionalization of the field and that there really are some, some core things that core attributes of professionalized fields that, that we don't have in our field, including a common core curriculum, common code of, you know, credentialing with there's like pockets of credentialing, but there's not, we don't have an integrated way of being a field. And we have lots of disciplines within that field. So we have, you know, we have our work cut out for us. And I think that we are up to the challenge and that when we look back at this time, you know, even 10 years from now, we're going to say like, again, like how did we function without that? Like this is this is so much more fun and so much more good for us and our clients to do this work, to build a really, truly professionalized field. And I look forward to recording a podcast in 10 years' time to to reflect back on exactly that. But for, yeah. for now, Kristin, Jim, Dennis, thank you so much for your time and valuable input into to today's show. As I say, I will link the article into the show notes and contact details for each of you in there in case our audience want to get in touch. But for now, thank you very much and uh, I'll speak to you all soon. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.